Hello friends, I am Kaushik Mazumdar, back with another episode of The Revolution, Untold Story of Indian Freedom Struggle. In the last episode, we narrated the heroic rebellion of Raja Choit Singh. Today, we will tell you the story of another Nawab and a mutiny which occurred almost 50 years before the famous mutiny of 1857. Born as a son of a servant, a menial worker Wazir Ali was adopted by Nawab of Ayat, Asafuddullah. Nominated by Asafuddullah at the age of 18, Wazir Ali ascends to the throne in 1797 following Asafuddullah's death. Wazir's claim at the Nawabhut was challenged by Asafuddullah's brother Sadat Ali on the ground of spuriousness of birth. Governor-General Sir John Shore personally concluded the investigation and approved his legitimacy to the claim at the throne. But things would reverse soon enough. Because of his anti-company views, Wazir soon fell out of the company's favour. Alike his predecessors, Wazir was expected to be a puppet king to the company. But he was not ready to give up. Notably, he demoted and isolated Jishan Ali Khan, a minister who under Asafuddullah was identified as being sympathetic to the British. Especially after the revolt of Choit Singh, the company Raj was more cautious and further aggressive. The court of directors instructed John Shore to increase the subsidiary army in Ayat. Desperate to maintain his sovereignty, Wazir Ali, when denied complying with company's demands, John Shore found Wazir Ali's administration secretly hostile to the company. No wonder, Wazir Ali was treated as the determined enemy to the company. In the light of his enmity, Wazir Ali was deposed in January 1798 through the company and a group of nobles in the Ayut court. With Sadat Ali, a formal treaty was signed on 21st February 1798, which increased the subsidy substantially. Wazir Ali was moved to Banaras, but he was allowed to hold a large retinue and granted a pension of 3 lakh rupees. But expectedly, Wazir was unhappy with the arrangement. Instead, he was in search of an opportunity to avenge. Often, the historians are found to limit the rebellion of Wazir Ali only to a local uprising known as the Massacre of Benaras. In January of 1799, the British government decided to shift Wazir from his former reem to Calcutta. The resident of Benaras, George Frederick Cherry, was given the responsibility to communicate Wazir Ali with the news and to carry out the operation. On 14 January 1799, Wazir Ali went to meet Cherry during a breakfast invitation with an army of 200 fully armed men. During the ensuing argument, Ali struck Cherry a blow with his sweber, whereupon the guards killed the resident and two more Europeans. 
Then they set out to attack the house of the magistrate of Benaras, Samuel Davis, who defended himself on the staircase of his house with a pike until rescued by British troops. This incident is known to be the massacre of Benaras. This was followed by a general uprising against the Europeans. Subsequently, Ali assembled a rebellious army of several thousand men. A quickly assembled force, commanded by General Arkshin, moved into Banaras and restored order by 21st January. Wazir Ali, with his men, took post at Madhudash's garden in Banaras. When Erskine progressed with his troop, Wazir Ali's supporters made a desperate resistance and fired on the British. In the meantime, Wazir Ali made his escape. From Arskin's account, we learned the districts of Benaras, Ghazipur and Azamgarh were spirited with the revolt against the British. The local zamindars and others who took part in the insurrection or helped it in any way were killed or captured after the resistance is over. Wazir Ali received support from men of great rank and valour like Jagat Singh of Sarnath fame, Siyonath Singh, Bhavani Shankar of Chityapur and Babus of Pindara Fort rose in revolt against the British along with Wazir Ali. Apart from them, there were chieftains and thousands of civilians fought for him. He also had the support of the Raja of Nepal. Shamsuddullah, brother of the Nabab of Dhaka and brother-in-law of the Nabab of Murshidabad, on behalf of both the Nawabs, sent two emissaries to Lucknow and Kabul, imploring him to exterminate the English. They all were tied through only one purpose of the termination of the British rule from India. In last few episodes, we have talked about famous confederacies proposed and formed by the Marathas, Nizam and Mysore at different instances. From the letters recovered from the Wazir Ali's position, it is found that Daulat Rao Sindhya gave his support to Wazir Ali to embarrass the British operations against Tipu Sultan. Ambaji maintained the secret communication with Wazir Ali on the behalf of Sindhya. Though British historians in their mention never given Wazir Ali's insurrections more than a failed attempt of jihad by a Muslim ruler, but the extent of impact of his uprise on the common people of India proves otherwise. Wazir Ali fled to Butwal in the district of Gorakhpur and received protection from the Raja in accordance of the Nepal Raj and to Rajputana from there on. He was granted asylum by the Raja of Jaipur. On request of Arthur Wellesley, Earl of Mornington, the Raja turned Ali over to the British on the condition that he neither be hanged nor be put in fetters. Ali surrendered to the British authorities in December 1799 and was placed in rigorous confinement at Fort William, Calcutta. To quote the Governor-General, Wazir Ali's outrage was formidable in its appearance and extensive in its possible consequences. Though lasted for a small time, this revolt left a long-lasting impact on the mind of Indians. 
to express the extent of Wazir Ali's insurrection on the British army may be expressed with the excerpt from Lord Mornington's letter to the Court of Directors dated 12 February 1799. But it will require much consideration to devise such a system of measures as shall afford permanent security to your positions against the ultimate consequences of an event of such evil impression and dangerous example. Soon the latest form subsidiary alliance devised by the company in response crippled almost every Indian prince. Now we will talk about the forgotten mutiny. Since 1799, the successors of Tipu Sultan were imprisoned at Velour. Tipu's wives, sons and some other political detainees were pensioners of the company and they were living in a place adjacent to the fort of Velour. The stage of the first instance of large-scale mutiny by the Indian sepoys against East India Company. Half a century ahead of the mutiny in 1857, the sepoys once served the local chieftains, either Hindu or Muslim. Those chieftains were their own, but now they were serving the foreigners. They could never forget their original loyalties. Before the mutiny, secret associations were formed in which Tipu's family took part. The sepoys were aware of the tragic fate of Pulithevar, Khan Sahib, Katta Buman, uh, Maradu brothers, Tipu Sultan and others. Hence, there were ill feelings about the British in the minds of sepoys. All these led to the mutiny. Indian sepoys had to experience numerous difficulties when they went to serve in the company's army. Any English soldier, irrespective of their rank, used to treat a sepoy as their inferior. There were racial prejudices. Lord Bentinck was the then Governor-General of Madras. Some instructions regarding the sepoy's dress code were issued by the company. Hindus were instructed to remove religious symbols from their forehead while on duty and Muslims to shave off their beards and regulate their moustaches. Besides, sepoys of all religions were directed to wear hats instead of turbans by commander-in-chief of the Madras army, like the contemporary European soldiers. Both Hindus and Muslims had a strong reservation with the leather cockade used in the hat. The sepoys were enraged by these orders as it interfered directly with their religious freedom. The orders were conceived as the first step by the British towards converting the Indians to Christianity. In May 1806, some sepoys protested against all these new directives. Two of them, a Hindu and a Muslim, were fired from service after punishing them with 90 lashes. 19 more sepoys were punished with 50 lashes along with an apology to the company. But how any episode of the history of Indian struggle for independence could conclude without a tale of betrayal? On June 17, 1806, a sepoy named Mustafa Big secretly informed his commanding officer, Colonel Forbes, that a plot had been composed for the extermination of British officers and troops. The message was not given 
due consideration. On the night before the mutiny, July 9, was the wedding of one of Tipu Sultan's daughters. The plotters of the mutiny amassed at the fortress under the stratagem of going to the wedding. After the capture of the fort, the Sultan's son was proclaimed king, but he refused to take the lead due to the indecision created upon unimaginable bloodshed. History has lost its true purpose in fueling the revolt of the Sultan's son's invisible councils. But the day is remembered as the first instance of an armed uprising of the native sepoys against the British East India Company. On July 10, 1806, at 2 a.m. in Velour Fort, across the darkness, the rebels of the Madras infantry spread like shadows and encompassed the fortification. 13 company officers and 115 soldiers of the 69th South Lincolnshire Infantry were butchered while sleeping in their barracks. Colonel St. John Francourt, the commander of the fort, was woken up and shot. Before the dawn, the rebels captured the fort and hoisted the flag of Mysore Sultanate over the fort. Fateh Haider, the second son of Tipu Sultan, was declared king by the rebels. The battle inside the fort was yet to be over. About 60 company soldiers occupied a small section of the fort and fighting for their lives, while the rebel leader Sheikh Qasim and some others were holding talks with Tipu's son reluctant to take charge. One of company generals, Major Coops, escaped from the fort in the dark of night and reached the Arcot Fort, 26 km away, at about 9 am. At 11 am, the 19th Light Dragon gunmen, led by Sir Robert Gillespie, and the Madras cavalry arrived at the fort of Villar. Gillespie was one of the most skilled officers in the history of East India Company. He took 15 minutes to perceive the situation from Copes and reached the fort with 20 selected soldiers before the main force. This fight was going to be one of the few true battle epics in the history of the company too. Gillespie climbed the castle wall with ropes and ordered the remaining unarmed troops to spend some time by attacking with bayonets. When the 19th Light Dragon guns reached the fort, engineer John Blackstone blew up the main entrance to prepare the ground for the final attack by Madras cavalry. As soon as the fort was recaptured after the deaths of about 250 sepoys and about 60 company soldiers, about 100 captive sepoys were lined up and shot on Gillespie's command. About 350 shippers were wounded and the rest fled the fort and got scattered. Gillespie later wrote in his autobiography that everything would have been over if he had arrived even five minutes late that day. Later, 24 shippers were caught by the police and the court-martial was arranged for them. Six of them were blown away from guns, five were made to stand in the firing squad, eight were hanged and five were deported. Velar mutiny ended just before the sunset of July 10. 
the sultanate flag flying over the fort changes again on sunset eyewitness accounts of this horrific battle were obtained from amelia farrar the survivor of the castle and lady francourt wife of commander colonel st john francourt written 2 weeks after this bloodbath in the aftermath of the battle all three madras infantry involved in the mutiny were dissolved the orders regarding the dress code and the turbans were withdrawn the senior british officers responsible for the offensive dress regulations including the commander in chief of madras army john cradock was recalled to england after the fateful day the incarcerated royals from the velour fort were transferred to calcutta the governor of madras william bentink too was recalled the company's court of directors regretting that greater care and caution had not been exercised in examining into the real sentiments and dispositions of the sepoys the controversial interference with the social and religious customs of the sepoys was also abolished from these three different events of revolt by the indians shapes up the trip through the ages from a group of states to the nation it was an awakening for the common people a nation was on the edge preparing for its largest yet revolt against the british the mutiny we will soon lead our course to mutiny but before that we have a few more stops to make in the process of building a nation with one common interest of freedom want to learn more about the untold story of indian freedom struggle keep listening we got a page from episode notes and resources visit us at http colon forward slash forward slash www.ksproductionsusa.com subscribe to the revolution untold story of indian freedom struggle at apple podcast stitcher spotify or wherever you get your audio be sure to leave us a review give us five stars and please talk about us to your friends and family We want to hear directly from you too so send us an email our email address is the revolution at ksproductionsusa.com The Revolution Untold Story of Indian Freedom Struggle is produced by KS Productions INC in collaboration with Pastel Entertainment Our executive producers are Kaushik Mazumdar and Shushmita Mazumdar from KS Productions INC and Shauli Mazumdar from Pastel Entertainment Our researcher is Dipanjan Maithi Content developed by Dipanjan Maithi and Koshik Mazumdar. Original music composed and designed by Shottajit Shem. We will come back in two weeks with another episode. Next, we'll begin to tell you the story of the rebellion of Sunnasis and Fokis. Till then, stay safe, stay healthy.